across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pints. My wife's cakes are excelling at hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour, bringing you food and drink news and stories for the Cambridge area. I'm Matt Bentman and sadly Sue Bailey can't be with us today, but Alan Alder is here as usual. Uh, yes, I am. Good afternoon. And today we're learning about ways of enjoying food in 2022, maybe getting to know more about food and food history, what's good to eat at different times of the year, learning how to get going on food foraging and taking baking classes. So, Susanna Watson from Meadows is here talking about the artisan British cheese industry and how major supermarket chains have unexpectedly contributed to its growth as well as advising on what types of cheese are best for now and in the spring. Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, has some really good advice on finding food in the wild. Alex Rushmore of Vandalisle tells us of his forthcoming talk at the Darwin College Lecture Series on Food. And Simon, from the Histon Smokehouse, along with Ria Falvo, are running Cambridge's first chocolate festival. We hear all about it. And we hear, too, about the bakery lessons coming up at the White Cottage Bakery. Yeah, but first, cheese, an all-year-round joy. But different cheeses are better at different times of the year, as Susanna Watson of Meadows in Eltersley Avenue explains to our Sue Bailey. But first, something of the remarkable history of British cheese and how the pooling of farmers' milk during rationing led to the demise of Britain's farmhouse cheeses and how major supermarkets, rather surprisingly, brought about its resurgence. The rationing in the Second World War pulled farmers' production into making food to feed the nation and to divide all that food as, as fairly as possible, which meant that farmhouse cheesemaking was effectively no longer legal. You had to declare your milk and give it into a uh, cooperative food production that would be shared out through the rationing system. So that's really what caused a huge decline around the 40s and 50s. That's interesting because no other country had that same sort of thing, did it? No, it was very much part of the sort of national decision process in, in how to, to feed the nation during the Second World War, specific to the UK and the government. And then, of course, we had the rise of the sort of supermarket and processed cheese, didn't we? Yes, yeah, so from that time, really, um, there was a reduction in the number of people actually making cheese um, and so the only cheese really available was that that was coming from co-ops and became more suitable for sale in the supermarket. And so suddenly farmhouse cheese has got back on track though. What, what, what started that up? That again sort of came about as a result of the, of the supermarkets in a way. Any farmers who'd stayed in dairy production very suddenly found that their milk, their liquid milk, reduced in value as the milk price dropped significantly. And so 
people who wanted to stay in dairy farming began to diversify and take the sort of the value of their milk back into their own hands by using it to make another product. And so we saw a huge rise in small farmhouse production, not just of cheese, but of things like yogurt and ice cream around that time, which would have been sort of late 80s, early 90s that it restarted again. Now, in fact, would you say, obviously we don't have as many different types of cheeses as as France, for example, has. But how many artisanal and farmhouse cheesemakers are there in the UK now? I think there's about six or 700 at this stage. Actually, what's interesting is that we do have a big diversity of small farmhouse production. In fact, more variety by name than there is in France. In France, you would have um, probably more farmhouse producers, but with quite a few farmhouse producers making the same cheese, for example, Reblochon and Tom de Savoie and things like that. There's more than one maker making that cheese, whereas here, individual farmers have created their own recipes, each with a, a single name. So, in fact, we have got more variety in number than we do in than they do in France now, which is quite an unexpected turn of events, really. That's really impressive, isn't it? Because I was reading somewhere recently that Yarg was one of the earlier farmhouse cheeses, and that was actually the name of the producers spelt backwards when they came up with this idea of surrounding nettles around the cheese. Yeah, it sounds like an old sort of Cornish word, but actually it is the, the cheesemaker's name, which is Gary, spelled backwards. Given that we're sort of in the winter months, coming towards spring. Are there sort of special, other cheeses that you'd recommend more for this time of the year? Yeah, so there's two different approaches you can take to looking for the cheeses that are going to taste good in early spring as we continue sort of effectively through the winter until March, April time. The first of all, there will be some new season goat cheeses and sheep's milk cheeses coming into the marketplace again, having been out of season through the autumn and winter months. And that's because the the young goats and baby lambs are born any time from January and February onwards, and so their milk becomes available. And so by mid-February, we should have some new season, fresh cheeses coming back into the shops again. And then the other thing that we like to do at, through the winter months is eat the, the mature hard cheeses that were made through the summer, either last summer or even 18 months ago in the previous summer. And so the farmhouse cheddars and any of the hard cheeses that age well for that much time will, should be tasting really good as they're either sort of 18 months old or six months old because they will have been made using really lovely summer grass. They will have matured for enough time to be tasting really good right now. And what about blue cheeses? Is that the same for those as well? Yeah, so what's lovely about some of the blues is that they age, again, they age really well for about six to eight months. So our Stilton, for example, which is a big favourite through Christmas time, will still be eating well through the early months of the year because that will have been made, again, 
from outdoor grazing through the spring and summer and they'll be tasting really good too. And it's interesting, I think people forget about the seasonality of cheeses. Absolutely, like it is really interesting to think about how old the cheese is and what would have been happening when it was made. And actually there are some recipes that work really well with winter milk, so things like Vacheron Montdor, for example, has always been made just through the winter months because it, it actually suits um, when the cows are eating dry food indoors and so they're eating hay. Those sorts of recipes are actually really tasty through the winter months as well because they were always designed to have been winter cheeses. So what sort of cheeses, um, sort of by name, would you recommend and ones that you sell at Meadows? I think we look out for some of the spring goat cheeses, things like St. Tola from Ireland, Finnerden Hill from Oxfordshire. Those are some nice fresh ones that will be coming into their new season soon. Uh, Stilton and our other British blues like Stitchelton and Pevensey Blues are also going to be eating really well through the next couple of months. And then um, the farmhouse cheddars as well. So at Meadows we stock Isle of Mull cheddar from Scotland. We have Hufford from Wales. And then we vary our local um, hard cheeses. So we tend to have either Lincolnshire poacher or Spark and Ho Red Leicester sort of in a rotation of, because I like to have a cheese from the east of England as well in our in our cheddar selection. They'll be the ones to look out for in the coming months. Lastly, what would you recommend that cheeses should be eaten with? I gather in France it's always suggested bread or walnut bread, but we tend to use crackers in the UK. Which do you prefer and which do you recommend? I actually really do like cheese with crackers. I think that was how I was brought up, but also I do like a, a good ratio of, of cheese to whatever the cheese is on. So with a cracker, obviously, you can load up with a bit more cheese. So I'm a little bit greedy in that way. It's always quite nice to have something else as an option as well if you don't want crackers. So cheese get, goes really well with nuts or with fruit, both fresh fruit or dried fruit. And chutneys and things, of course, are really popular. Personally, I actually prefer things that are on the sweeter side, so a jelly or even some honey is a really nice accompaniment for a saltier cheese. Mm. Oh, that sounds lovely. Oh. Oh, right, so it does, yes. <laughs> and what a remarkable story that is. And I must say, I've very much enjoyed the Hafford's Wells cheddar that Susanna mentioned. In fact, I think it's the nicest cheddar I've ever had. My other current favourite is from Roberto on the market. It's uh, a soft goat's cheese. Absolutely delicious. It's been one of my favourites for months. And what about the question of crackers or bread with cheese? Oh, well, wars have been fought on less than that, have they? <laughs> yeah, I suppose if I've not had much in the main course, bread would be okay crackers are lighter but mm. sometimes i think both of them sort of interfere with the flavor of the cheese and in france sometimes they have their cheese just with a knife and fork a friend a french friend of my wife was visiting her in lyon and she was asking for some cheese and she said that she wanted a cheese that was so runny so mature so runny that she would drink it through a straw so there's another <laughs> possibility <laughs> oh dear well i think um unlike Susanna, because she said she was brought up on crackers yeah i was both crackers and bread so french bread and so on and it's still to this day i think if i was on death row for example and you have your last <laughs> meal i would still go for bread and cheese 
grapes, uh, pate, etc. Yeah. I know you could have a million other fancy things, but I, I still contest that would be the that's what would be my choice. Yeah. Okay. Chris <laughs> McFarlane has uh, has tweeted and recommended some of the Cosne de Port Aubrey, which is a goat's cheese. The Gorbeth, your Welsh will be better than mine, but anyway, a Kerr Philly, which he says has a good breakdown and a great combination of textures. And also he recommends the, the Hafford or the Hayford. Lovely, lovely Hayford. It's been awesome these last few months. Yes, it has. Now details of free food available in and around Cambridge uh, and the information about all this comes from the Olio app which exists so that people's or businesses surplus food doesn't go to waste. Yeah, this may be the first time in a long time that pot noodles have been mentioned legitimately <laughs> on a food programme but uh, yeah, Nafisa, she lives near the Botanic Garden, she has two pots of pot noodles to give away, chicken and mushroom. Now they're past their sell-by date but they're dried, they're dehydrated so they're not going to go off anytime soon. A pickup time's can be arranged. Karishma, who lives out past Adambrooks, just off of Walt's Causeway, has an unopened jar of, I hope I say this right, Krenai Aster sauce from Lithuania, whilst Anastasia on Newmarket Road has some frozen duck offals. They come from an organic farm. They're within their use-by date, so they're not awful offal. They're not even falafel. She's just not good with cooking this kind of thing, she says. So she's awful at cooking offal, but she's offering the offal, frozen duck offal, to anyone who wants to collect them. And just time for one more. Nikki, who lives between between Arbury and King's Hedges is giving away a variety of things, ranging from bread, lentil and vegetable soup, cream of tomato soup, stewed steak, and by stunning coincidence, another chicken and mushroom pot noodle. You wait 12 years on this program to mention chicken and mushroom pot noodle and three come along at once. <laughs> she also has a chocolate yule log, a pasta sauce, and semi-skimmed long-life milk. All of this is unopened, by the way, and all of it is available for collection. These are just some of the things that I found via Cambridge on the Olio app today. And another free app, which we mustn't forget, Too Good To Go, has unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. And rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading. Okay, time for some news now. And the expansion of Aromi into the building next door is almost complete. So, a new bigger branch will be opening soon in Bennett Street, and the branch in Pease Hill will close. Uh, some Valentine's news. Finboys in Mill Road has sold out of tickets for its 10-course seafood dinner, but they are also doing an at-home Valentine's meal kit, which is £75 for two. It includes taramasalata with linseed and fennel crackers, a king prawn dish, halibut with a herb crust and accompaniments and the dessert is stem ginger bavarois and rhubarb jamaica cake and another piece of finboy news their at-home meal kit next week i.e from tuesday the 1st of february is bouillabaisse and the dessert is polenta cake with candied blood orange and creme fraiche. Mm. The Pear and Olive Scratch Kitchen in Hildesham has Valentine's celebrations on the 10th, 11th and 12th of February with a five-course meal each night. And by the way, they have their monthly tasting menu tonight as well, tonight being the 29th of January. Uh, Fitzbillies is selling a Valentine's box, which you can order online. Oyster Lab returns on the 2nd of March for an evening of oysters and some fine wines. That's at Tradizione at the station in Cambridge at 21 Station Place. Bookings are open now. Culinaris has taken delivery of sanguine Moro Plateau blood oranges, which apparently is a variety with a particularly intense colour and flavour. 
The Radmore Farm Shop in Victoria Avenue is now stocking herby goat sausages. Corinne Paye of Gourmandise, who's been back home in Réunion Island, is running a class on Réunion's cuisine, whose roots lie in Africa, India, China and France. It begins with a starter that includes mango, lime and avocado. Sounds fantastic. And then there's a main course and a dessert that uses papaya, mango, pineapple and rum. You can book individually or a party of at least four for which a group discount can be applied. Details are on the Gourmandise Academy website. And congratulations to two Cambridgeshire pubs who have made it into the top 50 UK gastropubs list, published by Australia Dam. The Plough in Coton and the Three Hills in Bartlow, which is just south of Linton. It's a great achievement and we also hear that Michelin has been checking out Fancits in Mill Road. So we look forward to hearing some good news from them. Berry St Edmunds Café Gastronomie is opening a branch in Bridge Street in Cambridge in March and they'll be open for breakfast, brunch and dinner. Pint Shop in Pease Hill is now back open from noon every day of the week. And the first Cambridge Chocolate Festival is running from the 11th to the 13th of February, tying in with Valentine's, at the Histon Smokehouse. I spoke with Simon from the Smokehouse and chocolatier Ria Falvo of Bumble and Oak. Working with um, Ria from uh, Bumble and Oak, uh, we've come up with the first chocolate festival um, to be held in the area. And to go with it, we've come up with a cocktail menu for the Friday and Saturday, and Sunday, in fact. And on the... Valentine's weekend, we call it, we're not calling it Valentine's Day, that's the Monday and we're shut. As part of the Valentine's menu, and to tie in with the chocolate, we're doing a special menu which features chocolate in all the dishes. Oh, fantastic. Well, well, let's start with the cocktails, anyway. Ria, these are chocolate cocktails. Uh, We did work with uh, Pavel and Eamon from um, Histon Smokehouse, and we more or less gave Pavel artistic license. So he came up with four cocktails, my favourite being the Frisky Fashioned, it's, um, well, it's an old-fashioned, which is one of my favourite tipples, and he's used a chocolate bitters, and I've collaborated with him, and we're going to top the frisky-fashioned with an orange dark chocolate truffle as well. And all the chocolate we've used for the festival and on the menus, origin chocolate from the cacao belt in South America. Well, what about the, what about the, uh, the food, Simon? How do you get chocolate into a brunch menu, for example? Well, actually, brunch was easier than the actual um, <laughs> evening menu, if I'm honest. That was a bit of a, a task. But the breakfast was the Mexican chocolate sauce that was advised by Ree. Um, that ties in quite well with French toast, etc. So actually, the brunch was, was quite easy. So we'll be running um, cinnamon French toast with uh, a bit of chocolate sauce, and you can add bacon, and you can add banana to that. And then we're doing a mole benedict, which is a take on the benedict. And we'll have a vegan, um, a salmon and a, a ham version of that with the Mexican savoury chocolate sauce. The main menu was quite tricky, um, although we've got scallops on as a starter and that tends to go quite well with things like vanilla and that. So we're going to do a cocoa oil with that. Mm. We're going to do a carrot and turnip carpaccio with walnuts, black olive and chocolate caramel, which I think will go quite well. In terms of the mains, well, venison is notoriously good with chocolate, so that works in my favour. So we're doing a smoked venison with pomana, cablanero, and chocolate butter. And then desserts, actually, taken out of our hands, because that's quite helped by Ree, because she's going to help us do a terrarium, a chocolate terrarium for two, um, which is, yeah, with micro-air, 
truffles that you've got to dig out of popping soil. It'll be quite cool. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. So it's going to be a fun day, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, really, really, really <laughs> right. Basically, the old supper clubs, which, you know, we're bringing the senses to you. So hopefully we'll have some chocolate mist and fences to, to go with the night. And we've got some Parisian music, jazz music to go with it as well. Oh, right. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty good, isn't it? It'll be an entire experience. So a sort of Heston Blumenthal thing, really, because he goes in for entire experiences, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, exactly. Sounds of the sea when you're eating your fish, that sort of thing. Yeah. But there are also tours and, and shops as well. So initially, so Simon um, set up the garden at the Hisson Smokehouse, which is where we met. And I just knew it was the right venue for the chocolate festival because he'd already built um, stalls to support the community, um, small businesses and, and Cambridge Independence and surrounding area. So I knew as soon as I'd had a stall there in the summer that it was the best place. So I've had this in mind for a long time. Right, so what's going to be on? These are chocolate stalls, presumably. So we do have uh, primarily chocolate stalls, chocolatiers. I have Barbarella Cafe joining us as well and Meadows Deli who um, carry and distribute chocolate. They're all, they've always been supportive of the community and again, Cambridge Independence. Um, but you enter the festival through a marquee. Um, Anissa and Chocolate and I, Anissa... Uh, is a very good friend of mine. We've collaborated several times before in the past. So we'll be running people through um, the entire process of roasting raw cacao beans, grinding them down, making it into a paste, uh, winnowing, that sort of thing, and then the final product. Right, so, so showing how chocolate is yeah, made. Yeah, basically getting people... Um, we can't really get them hands-on, and we'd, we'd love to have somebody there kind of making, because um, I teach classes as well, but... We probably won't be able to do that this time, but that's how you enter the chocolate vessel through the marquee, through the chocolate factory, and then into the stalls. And there'll be, there's eight stalls, and I'll I'll probably list those um, online through social media. But there's eight stalls on Saturday, and I think six or seven on on Sunday so far. So. Right, and, and all chocolatey in some way. We do have a kind of chocolate themed, but we also have a small and green joining us, so Janet Fox, and she's also. Um, helping us um, set up the tables indoors for the um, evening menu on Saturday. So she's going to put terrariums. So we have a bit of a theme, a terrariums and mist and a, an entire experience. So she'll be decorating the tables with her terrariums and and then I'll bring out a chocolate terrarium as well for dessert. So. How good. But, and we will have kind of cacao and chocolate smells throughout the air and vanilla and that sort of yeah. thing. So, yeah, it's it's well. very sensory. So... Yeah. Sort of thing I like, actually. Uh, Simon, people people book via social media, presumably. Well, they can book through our, our website. Okay. They, book, they follow the website, or they can contact us directly or email pistonspokehouse at gmail.com. Yeah. Okay, right. Well, I hope the day of well, the weekend goes well. It's a great idea. Maybe. Yeah, I think it, I think it will. Maybe yeah. this one will run and run. It'll... Well, so we're, I think we're definitely hoping to collaborate in the future and and do more things together because we really enjoy working. I hope I'm not talking on your behalf. <laughs> we really enjoy working together and work very well. And I think it's something we'd like to grow. And we're both very supportive of the community. So. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you, Simon. All right. Thanks for it. Thank you. Okay, let's have a little look now at some upcoming cooking workshops in our area. Helen Underwood runs the White Cottage Bakery in Kingston. She's an award-winning sourdough baker, and she has her own school running bread classes. I spoke with Helen the other day about what classes are coming up at the White Cottage Bakery. 
We run introductory classes every single month. There's always a French or an Italian bread making. We run a sourdough every month as well. So there's usually one or two classes every week. You know, it's been great reading your story online at uh, whitecottagebakery.co.uk about how you began the business by challenging yourself to make 100 loaves in 100 days. I think it's one of those things that you... You spend long enough doing something. Don't they say 10,000 hours? If you put 10,000 hours into anything, you can become an expert. And I I think I've done my dues. (laughs) (laughs) You talked about just how much you love the teaching side of it as well. The reactions you get from your students, I suppose. And that's what it's all about. It is. It is. It's a really joyful thing to do, actually. I, I seem to have one of the best jobs in the world because people come along with the expectation that they're going to have a lovely day. You know, they turn up and they're feeling quite positive when they arrive. And of course, Mm. they go away with an armful of warm bread. So we end up with a great positive cycle, a positive reinforcement every day. And and so just teaching now, we don't run the bakery as a commercial bakery anymore. We just teach. And actually, it's, it's genuinely is one of the best jobs in the world. I'm very lucky. You put a lot of time and effort into making bread and time is very precious to us all at the moment. And I just feel that if you are going to do that, it is much better to use the best possible ingredients that you can. So if you can use the finest flour that you possibly can afford, it may be three times the price of the cheapest flour, but in itself, it's not that expensive an ingredient. And when you're making something like sourdough, your ingredients literally are flour, water, salt. There's nothing else. So if you're just using flour, water and salt, you're only buying, well, apart from a small amount of salt, you're only buying the flour. So just make it the best you possibly can. Well, should we cover a few of your upcoming workshops then? Absolutely. Our introductory class is aimed at people who haven't baked before. We work with a simple white dough and a simple brown dough. And then we make a variety of things just so that people get a, get the chance to try lots of different techniques with two basic doughs. So they hand knead because we always work by hand. It's much better to get a feel for the dough and to understand what you're doing if you can actually get really down into the ingredients and make sure that you're feeling your way through the whole process. So we make tinned loaves, seeded rolls, a freeform cob, and we also make a wonderful walnut curon or or crown or wreath, whatever you want to call it, which are remarkably simple to make, but look incredibly effective. So that's what we get done on our introductory course. And of course, everybody goes home with all these wonderful things at the end of the day. We've got Italian coming up as well. And Italian is always a great fun one. So on the Italian, we make ciabatta and focaccia and we make some wonderful little rondelle, which are made with a olive oil and, and, and also uses the durum wheat from the, the south of Italy. We use lots of fabulous ingredients, Italian ingredients. So there's great smells come out of the kitchen on those days. <laughs> of course, it wouldn't be complete if we didn't learn how to make pizzas. So everybody makes their pizzas at the end of the day so that they can eat them for their lunch. No rolling pins to be seen. We have to throw the pizzas properly in the traditional way, so we teach everybody how to do it properly. (laughs) And the French bread workshop as well? 
The French Bread Workshop encompasses all of those favourites of people whenever they go to French bakeries or the boulangerie in France. So we make baguettes and épis de blé, and we make them in the traditional method. So we use an overnight dough from the day before. So we have a really good, tasty dough that we work with. And épis de blé are the, are the little baguettes that look like blades of wheat. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but they're mm. cut in a very special way. And they're really, really pretty, very attractive. So uh, we make those. We make fougasse, which is the hearth bread. Very beautiful, looks a little bit like a leaf. We also make a bread called pain de mie, which is the classic French bread that they use for making things like croque monsieur. It means crumb, mie is crumb, crumb. So it's simply the, a very, very fine, soft crumb. So it's a bread made that's slightly enriched with a little bit of butter, a little bit of honey, a little bit of milk, but it makes a beautiful white soft crumb, a very tender crumb. And it's what we call our Sunday morning bread. So we make it on a Saturday evening, put it mm. in the fridge, to uh, prove overnight and then we can get up in the morning and, and bake it and the smell of butter fills the air it's delicious and then the last one i think we make on that particular workshop is a uh, pan de compagne which is the rustic french bread it's a uh, very typically in a round shape in a round boule that one is made with a little bit of rye so traditionally when in the country in france when the wheat was harvested the little bit of rye would be in there in the mix and so we emulate that now by putting about 10 or 15 percent of rye in the mix of the dough that we make it just makes it slightly off white so instead of being a a, a pure white bread it has a slightly browner color and a, a lot more flavor and a bit more texture the other thing is, I could just very quickly mention, yeah, yeah, sure. um, just because it might be quite interesting, is that we've there's a hot cross buns workshop on the 6th of April. So just before Easter, we're running a little half day hot cross buns workshop, which is uh, which is always very popular. <laughs> That's grand. Now that was Helen Underwood, and her classes are available to book via her website, whitecottagebakery.com. There's a maximum of eight people per class, leaving plenty of space for neophyte bakers to work and move around. Her website also has plenty of material, including making and maintaining your own sourdough starter, many recipes too. In particular, uh, with Valentine's coming up, she has this cheese and marmite bread heart recipe. So, you better know whether your other half is a marmite person. <laughs> yes. Right, we're off for a two-minute break now, uh, and in part two, we'll be hearing from Alex Rushmer of Vanderlyle about his forthcoming talk at the Darwin College Annual Lecture Series, which is open to the public and is free. We'll also hear from Steve Thompson on beginning foraging, and we'll have more local food and drink news too. Cambridge 105 Radio. Saturday night on Cambridge 105 Radio is all about the soul. Hi, this is Jamie Stocker. Join me here on Cambridge 105 Radio playing two hours of classic, rare and new funk and soul regular features and playing the very best in new music across the funk and soul genres. The Funk and Soul Show with Jamie Stocker tonight at 8, right after Chris Brown on Cambridge 105 Radio. Just your average night. Fraser's upstairs gaming online with his mates. Sophie's streaming her favourite tunes in her bedroom. Mum's downloading the latest drama box set. And Dad's liking kitten videos on his phone. But this isn't your average night. 
Thanks to City Fibre's full fibre network, everyone's gaming, streaming and scrolling at breakneck speed. Join Cambridge's gigabit revolution today. Head to cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life cambridge 105 radio and welcome back to flavor uh, let's head over to vandal in mill road where i asked alex rushmer about the talk he'll be giving on the 18th of february it's part of darwin college's annual lectures and it's free and you don't need to book more information after we've heard from alex alex you're giving a talk at uh, darwin <laughs> college uh, um, about uh, food as expression, and I'm wondering what that could possibly cover. Yeah, so am I, actually. <laughs> we're, only, we're only a couple of weeks out. This is a huge honour for me. I'm very, very pleased to be, to be doing this, and it's taken me out of my comfort zone, certainly. Um, and alongside some very, very esteemed and established academics, they've asked me to talk about food, food as expression, which is the title of the lecture that they've, that they've, um, that they've given me. Um, but they've said, you know, talk about whatever you want whatever direction you want to take that title feel free to do so okay so what is the direction then or so directions I'm, the, 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 I'm going to talk about food as an expression of, uh, of of humanity food as an expression of who we are as a as a species and how we've arrived here and the you know the evolutionary path that the advent of cooking created for our uh, for ancestral species of, of hominids and right up into the present day, food is an expression of community. Um, how we express our thoughts, feelings, politics, economic circumstances, relationships through food, and then more specifically about how chefs have expressed themselves through food through the advent of the restaurant. Um, and I've been doing a lot of research about the history of the restaurant and where the restaurant originated from. And there's a, very, there's a commonly accepted origin story for the restaurant. And the, the, the reading that I've been doing has been really interesting to see that completely thrown out of the, wa- thrown out of the water. And the restaurant as a concept is far older than revolutionary France, which is the sort of accepted origin story. and. Um, it dates back another seven centuries to, to Song Dynasty China. So I've been, I've been, it's been really nice to sort of start working the cogs in my brain that haven't been worked for about 15 years or so yeah, since I left God, university. That's fascinating. But also, I mean, I've attended quite a few of the Darwin lectures and they're, they're quite intense as a lot of words are spoken. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, and it's, I think they're an hour, aren't they? Question, or is it an hour and a half? It's, it's an hour that I've got to, that I've got to speak right. for. And um, they first approached me about this. Ivan, who's the catering manager at Darwin, who's eaten at the restaurant here at Vandalal, he first approached me about this in the, in the summer. And at that point, it seemed, you know, I looked at, oh, it's eight months away. I've got ages. It's not so much of a daunting task. And as, the, as it became more and more of a real prospect, I thought, oh, actually, this is, this is quite an undertaking, um, yeah. to be honest. And I've really got to put some, put some work into it. 
I've got to write about it's between sort of six and seven thousand words, um, for, for which is what it looks like on paper. And I do have to submit it in writing as well. It's going to be published as part of a book, um, following up following the series of lectures. Um, so it's been real. It, it has. It's been. It, it's, it's made me feel like a student again, which has been really nice. Yeah, and uh, and so on your break from Vanderlyle over the sort of Christmas and New Year, that's one of the things you've been doing. Yeah, I've spent a good. Um, so I stopped fully for Christmas. We we closed the restaurant on Christmas Eve, um, and then I had a good week doing nothing, just just relaxing, seeing the family, having a Christmas for the first time in two years, which was fantastic. Uh, and then I, I got my head stuck into the books and really treated it like a full-time job really so starting at nine o'clock having a little break for lunch um, and then hitting the books again at, 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 for the for the afternoon and then writing sort of fairly late into the evening actually but it's been a challenge but it's been a very enjoyable one so far yeah so will you be talking about sort of the modern restaurant and how that has evolved and, and possibly where it's going to go to have you got any conjecture so there is, there's 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 a sort of there's quite a focus on uh, on the origins of the restaurant as we know it from uh, from 12th century china uh, and then there's a big gap and the advent of the restaurant um, in its sort of very modern form appears in in pre-revolutionary france and then really takes its form through paris during the 19th century. Um, I'm not going to focus too much on conjecture and where I think things will go. I'm, I will talk about the present, the present existence of the restaurant and, and uh, how, how we view the restaurant and the role of the restaurant in terms of um, sort of social responsibility, environment, environmental yeah. responsibility. Um, and sustainability and sort of regenerative farming practices but this is I mean it's I'm, I'm having I'm now in the edit process so I'm having to take bits out so I'm way over I'm way over the, the sort of the word count um, yeah. so I'll need to um, I certainly need to concentrate things ever so slightly and God, you're be really busy the Darwin College lectures are held on Fridays at 6pm in the Lady Mitchell Hall. That's on the university's Sidgwick site off Sidgwick Avenue. You just turn up, there's no need to book, and if it's full, they open an overflow lecture hall where you can watch on a screen. Alex's is on the 18th of February, but there's also one on the 4th and one on the 11th. <laughs> And there's the music signalling time for news from social media, beginning with Twitter. Yeah, Biscotti did Deborah has tweeted a fantastic picture of some petty fours, ideal for Valentine's, I think, and they're available from her online shop. Finboys have sent an Instagram saying that the smoked salmon bagels today... That's Saturday from the deli. Hill Street Chocolates in All Saints Passage is producing some lovely heart-shaped chocolates. They're open on Friday and Saturday in Cambridge. They're also available online. And Jack's Gelato, a secret flavour today, is sweet potato, maple and marshmallow, which is extraordinary. <laughs> potato, maple, marshmallow. Yeah, must have a go of it. <laughs> Okay, time for some more news now. And the Edge Cafe on Mill Road is having a Valentine's supper on Saturday, the 12th of February. Tickets are £15 per head, and for that, you get fruit cocktail with cheese bites, baked camembert with cranberry and toasted sourdough, or stuffed peppers with pesto oil and toasted seeded bread. 
chicken or mushroom stroganoff with garlic and herb mash and fresh veg, chocolate torte and lemon torte served with thick, thick cream, and coffee, tea, and love cake. You can either book your ticket at the edge, or you can call Sarah on 07940-468-478. And of course, these details are on the Edge Cafe website. You'll be able to find the Steak and Honor street food van parked outside Hot Numbers in Gwider Street every first Friday of the month, starting next Friday, the 4th of February. And that will coincide with live gigs at Hot Numbers the same night. You can even place your food orders online several days ahead of time. There's a new starter on the menu at The Shepherds. That's the kitchen that's run by Mark Poynton. It's his take on ham, egg and chips. So his take comprises smoked ham hock and duck liver ballotine, egg yolk puree and puffed potato. Never does things by half, does Mark? Uh, it's pizza night tonight, Saturday night, at Hot Numbers Roastery in Shepreth with stone-baked sourdough bases and their own sauce developed by Oris and Son, uh, who features on Flavour a while ago. The pizzas come with a variety of options suitable for vegans and vegetarians. Meanwhile, over at Cambridge Market, Cameron, otherwise known as the Halloo Man, hopefully you'll have seen his stall, he specialises in halloumi dishes. Well, he's got something new on his menu, roasted tomato soup, pumpkin pesto halloumi, and char-grilled sourdough. Sourdough is really getting a lot of mentions today, isn't it? Mm. Um, the Three Horseshoes in Maddenley is also celebrating Valentine's with a three-course menu at £50 per person, which will get you such delights as cured salmon, roasted Jerusalem artichokes, Chateau Briand to share, and salted caramel and chocolate fondants, among other things. And Scott's All Day on Mill Road is ringing every last ounce out of Veganuary with its vegan barbecued pork. That's pork in inverted commas, obviously, along with toppings of vegan cheese, chilies, red onion and barbecue sauce. Stir Cafe, who first opened in Chesterton Road a few years ago, now has a food van on the Chesterton Mill site. That's between Histon Road and Victoria Road, not too far from the Science Park, in fact. With plenty of indoor and outdoor seating, the Stir Van will be regularly serving coffees, juices, smoothies, fresh pastries, toasties and soups. Mm. And finally, I suffered a bit of a mild heart attack when Limoncello posted a photo of their shop on Mill Road with the comment, an icon since 1997. And the first thing I thought was, oh no, here's another place that's about to go. But no, it was just Steve wanting to take a sunny outside shot because he was happy and it was a nice day. Now, for those who don't know, Steve Turville is the owner of Limoncello, and I first met him several years ago, and I remember being so impressed at how he dealt with these two very large, very intimidating guys who came into his shop, just as I was trying to get an interview with him. So, it was just the four of us, it was late night, it was bucketing down with rain, it was the end of the evening, and these guys, they had fists the size of my head, and they were trying to force him to buy what they had in their van, but Steve wasn't having any of it. He but the thing was, he was so polite and he was so reserved about it that they could not shake him. And it was really incredible to watch. He was like James Bond. You know, they'd have beaten me into next year if I'd have said anything, but he was unflappable. And it's just something that I'll, I'll never forget. Yeah, good for him. Yeah. Right, the beginning of the year, and it's such a good time to start a new activity. If foraging is something you fancy, then here's Steve Thompson with some guidance on how to get going with it, accompanied by young son Rowan on percussion. 
Well, the first thing is start getting out on some walks. I mean, you can start doing foraging from your home and anywhere outside your house and start looking at plants. But it's lovely to get out and walk a bit more. And I think that can pair in with a lot of people's getting healthier New Year's and things like that. Try not to do too much at once. So pick a couple of plants you might already know. So say, for instance, nettles and dandelions and just familiarise yourself. And then it's that's the place to start. Once you start off with a couple of plants, then pick another one and then another one and then just keep going. Don't try and learn too much at the beginning. Learn little work up. I know we've got Rowan here as well and you've been teaching him. He's not two yet, is he? He's just two, yes. He's, oh, he's just <laughs> two. That's lovely. He now can begin to see plants, can't he? And begin to see things that almost perhaps you wouldn't see. <laughs> he's been spotting field bluets everywhere this week that we've been going. And my eyesight's not as good as it used to be, so he's my little uh, he's my little eyes and he shrieks and sees them. But he knows, yeah, he's not quite speaking properly yet. We're just getting some words, but he knows about nine or ten different plants now. So we can send him off the lot one of the pop-ups we did oh goodness before he was two so end of november time he picked all the dandelion greens for the pop-up yeah we just send him off say we want the green parts of the dandelions will come we check everything he does he gets into it so it's proof that it's not too hard to start learning it's about the processes of doing it and that's a lovely thing as well to sort of the idea of sharing something like this with children they can enjoy a walk as well as you and it's making it fun for them yeah i think it can be a whole thing for the family and what better way to start looking after to the planet and the world and teaching the next generation that you can actually find these things on your doorstep and use them. So it's something we bang on about a lot is the spices and we ship them all from all over the world but really we have the most wonderful spices around on the British Isles growing naturally in the hedgerows and everything like that. If we maybe can teach these next generations that kind of thing then that can do a lot more and stop the air miles and plus we get some flavours that we're just not used to which are absolutely wonderful that we're really missing out on. Presumably people used to use pot herbs and things like this they used to pickle berries and so on for years didn't they exactly that they're just forgotten skills from a few generations they're not hard to pick up it's all fairly simple mm -hmm. a lot of the processes we do and other techniques in cooking we can just use for the uh, forage food as well and bring them back and that's the best thing it's free as you said you've always got to be a bit careful if it's sort of open land woodland meadowland that you can roam safely there if it's on a footpath certain things we shouldn't pick we shouldn't pick unless you have the landowner's permission routes for instance there are plenty of sites I'm sure you can find that you know the landowners or you can ask and then roots are absolutely fine to dig up and there's wonderful plants like Alexander's roots are brilliant, they're really tasty. We've got Woodhaven roots which are like our natural version of cloves. Familiarise yourself with the rules, stick to the footpaths where you can. A lot of mistakes people make is go into the woods with really big heavy boots on and stuff in case they get muddy. You're better off going in with something lighter and you might get your shoes a bit muddy. We can give them a wash off when we get home. When I go out walking I do tend to wear walking boots because where we walk at the moment there's a lot of mud if you're foraging you're perhaps in a slightly different mindset or you're doing a light walk more when you're if you're going off the path say for instance if you're on the path it's okay their paths are made for that but if you're going off path some lighter shoes and picking realistically you're not going to do any damage plants okay if you dig them up and take the roots then they're not going to come back but all the other aspects of it pruning them back trimming them back taking some leaves as long as you're sensible with it and common sense then it's absolutely fine do you need to take a basket a backpack a pruning knife scissors what should you take i mean to be entirely honest 
I don't often tend to carry that much on me. We tend to always have a bag in our pocket just in case, a little cloth bag. If I'm going out specifically for something, then yeah, I might take a knife and a basket. Otherwise, keep something on you that you can keep in your everyday life. Because if you start limiting yourself, then you'll find that you do it a lot less. Whereas if you've got a little cloth basket in you, you'll be amazed at what you start to see when you're walking around in your everyday life, when you're walking through cities and towns, or when you're taking the dog for the walk in the morning. And it just opens up a bit more time to be able to do it, really. You don't have to make the specific journeys to go and do it, and it's a lot less effort. If you can combine something in your everyday life, you're more likely to actually do it. Let's say if it's leaves and so on that you're picking, how long can they sort of survive in your cloth bag without wilting and being gone to waste? Best thing is just to treat it like anything else you would. So if you were picking spinach from your garden, how long would you leave that for? And that, I think if you can get it back and you can get it in your fridge, you're going to get a few days out of it easily. And if it goes slightly wilty, we'll then just pop it in a bit of water. You can then cook with it. A lot of like the spring leaves that are coming through at the moment make beautiful salad. But if they go a little bit wilty, make a leek and potato soup base and them all in there. It's about familiarising yourself with the ingredients and using them in ways you'd use shop-bought ingredients. There's nothing really scary once you've identified it about using something. Just think about what textures and flavours it reminds you of and replace it in, in everyday cooking with other things. That's an excellent idea. So what sort of things have you been cooking recently, Steve? And also, I gather you've got a, a pop-up or two coming up soon. Yeah, we do. First of all, what we've been picking at the moment, there's some wonderful things like, as I say, the spring leaves are coming out. Jack by the Hedge is wonderful. We've got some lovely fresh cow parsley coming out. Ground ivy, which is one of my personal favourites. It's got a wonderful flavour, kind of like a minty sage. A lovely, lovely fresh herb. Uh, field bluets, like we mentioned earlier, we've been picking. That's kind of right at the tail end of them, really, though. These last couple of heavy frosts have started to kill it off. We're looking at spring herbs. I don't think wild garlic's going to be too far off. I've already had a first pick of a few shoots. Check your sunnier patches, and that's starting to come through. Things like ground elder all of your kind of weedy herbs that come through in spring are all really shooting up now and they're lovely and fresh so really good for this time of year when you're craving like salads and vitamins and get them in your diet and yeah pop-ups we've got a pop-up coming if you have a look on our social medias instagram or facebook it'll be on search for the foraging chef you can see the menus it's going to be at the pikeneal in needingworth on saturday the 5th of february it'll be about rival 6 30 for dinner at seven we do a wonderful nine course wild food tasting menu if you give me an email steve at the foraging chef.co.uk then we can get it all booked in and it's all ticketed so you have to email me to be able to come but as I say all of those details and the menus are all on our socials and it's going to be a really exciting first one of the year and hopefully we can fill this one out get it nice and busy and push on and get a load more events around the area Just to give a flavour of some of the dishes that you've got coming up what's on the menu? So we've got some wonderful new combinations we've got some hake that we're going to be doing with Magolio which is our green pine cone syrup with soy sauce and yarrow which is a wonderful pairing so it's going to go really well this kind of oriental or fish with the green pine. Um, we've, we've got our agaricus kimchi broth, which we bring back. We've also got some chamomile from last year that we saved. We've got the pear vinegar. So our peri vinegar is just about ready now. So that's going to be going with it with some lavender from our garden as well. So we've got loads of things. We've got a signature mushroom desserts again, and we've got loads of mushrooms all going through it as well. Nine courses for £65. Pounds. Pounds. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, it'll be a really good fun night. So yeah, it's one night only for this one. We've got 30 tickets available. So please, yeah, drop us an email, Steve at theforagingchef.co.uk we'll hopefully see you all there that sounds like a lovely start to february yes it does indeed and you can follow steve and his foraging exploits on instagram just search for chef steve thompson you'll also find some of his recipes there too such as jack by the hedge horseradish and cheese straws and how to make pontac sauce often described as elderberry ketchup
Well, we hope the ideas in today's programme help to make an interesting start to 2022 on the food front. However, there are some reasons to be concerned about how things might go. In this, our final piece today, we've an interview with Jeremy Newsom, landlord of the White Horse at Barton, and his thoughts on the pub trade at the beginning of the year. January is notoriously a bit of a tricky time post-Christmas, both in the restaurant and the pub trade. So what would your comments be for January and then going into February in terms of how things have been for the business? January is always a poor time in the pub trade, but this year it's been exceptionally poor because of lack of confidence with COVID, people not sure still about whether they ought to be coming out, and coupled with rising prices and perhaps people had had a more expensive Christmas than they would otherwise have had. Yes, perhaps people pushed the boat out a bit more given the fact that they could get together with friends and family and now drawing their horns in a little bit. Yes, we had hoped that some of the cancelled Christmas parties might have rebooked in January, but that has not happened. Prices then, how is that affecting you? How's the beer and wine side of things been affected by price changes? Not much yet. There is rumour that the major brewers will be putting their prices up this month and next month. And there is mention of at least one brewery putting their prices up 5 to 7%. That's quite a lot, isn't it? And I mean, you are known as a real ale pub. And again, this is where a real ale needs to be carefully looked after and depends on regular trade. Yes, it does. If you don't sell the beer, it very quickly goes off. Which are the beers that you have at the moment? We have two on regularly. We have Timothy Taylor's Landlord at 4.3% and Ruddle's Best at 3.7%. So there's a nice choice for the real ale drinkers. And... Of course, you have a lovely open fire as well, a lovely outside area, but that's not much use when it's freezing cold, is it? No, it isn't. We do get some diehards having a drink under our Thai-style structures outside, but uh, they're few and far between. Well, let's hope that it's going to be warming up soon and that things are going to start blossoming both in your beautiful garden and also from the trade point of view. Yes, I hope so. Let's hope for a warm spring. Exactly so. And there's Green Onion signalling the start of our jobs section. Uh, Cambridge Sustainable Food needs a manager for its food and climate programme to lead, deliver and develop its climate programme. The aim is to seek to make Cambridge a national gold standard city in that respect. The job is part-time, three days a week. The closing date is 5pm on the 13th of February. Apply via the Cambridge Sustainable Food website. Café Foy has vacancies for front of house and bar work, both full-time and part-time. Send your CV to caféfoy at gmail.com or you can send a direct message if you want more information. Finboys is looking for a chef. Email info at fin-boys.com for details of how to apply. Dolcido is looking for a full-time baker. The pay range is twenty-two to 26000 depending on experience, and you can email dolcidopatisserie at icloud.com. A chef is needed at the Clarendon Arms in Clarendon Street. Weekend and evening work will always be required. Now, for the following jobs, you can apply via the company or college website. A chef de partie is needed at Pembroke College. 
Pay is just over 25,000, and the closing date is the 31st of January, so better be quick. And Pembroke is also looking for a junior sous chef, for which four years chef experience is needed. Call Sebastian Little if you need more details on Cambridge 764557. Pay for that one is just short of 29,000. Gonville and Keys has a vacancy for a chef to partee. Pay is just over 26,000 a year, and the closing date is 12 noon on the 8th of February. A commie chef is needed at the Ivy Brasserie in Trinity Street. Zizi in Bennett Street needs a chef and an assistant chef. Browns in Trumpington Street is looking for a chef and a commie chef. The company website is Mitchell and Butler's. Uh, Parker's Tavern at the University Arms Hotel requires a chef de partie. Basic pay is 25.6 thousand a year, with an additional trunk of around 3,000 a year. Apply via the University Arms website. And finally, Bills in Green Street are looking for a sous chef with a minimum of one year's experience. And that takes us to the end of our programme for today. Don't forget we are here on Alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, repeated on Mondays at 6pm and Thursdays at 2pm. And we will also be available on podcast early next week. Coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today at 1pm is the Gadget Guide and Sue Marchant's selection is at 2pm. But that's all from us. We'll be back on the 12th of February with lots more food and drink news, jobs and features. But until then, goodbye. goodbye.